What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this amazing program known as The Takeout, which is each and every week two things. What are those two things? Relentlessly curious, steadfastly non-ideological. And if you can see me a little bit more clearly this week, folks, on CBSN, well, there's a reason for that. We finally got a decent camera to go along with my aged laptop. It's even on a tripod and everything. Let's just say it takes a while for the takeout program to get the attention of our corporate overlords to get us the kind of technological gear that makes things a little bit more visible, a little bit brighter, a little bit sharper. So... If you see me more clearly, I hope that's not a detriment to you. I hope it's at least a 50-50 proposition. Anyway, great to have you with us again, working from home. uh, We've been doing this since the early part of March, and we're going to continue to do it. Restaurants don't want us in there right now, and we don't want to get in their way. Uh, So this is what we're going to continue to do. Uh, Our guests this week will be two, because we're going to focus on Supreme Court vacancy created by the death of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Two of these segments will be with someone who would... I think fairly describe herself as being on the center right of this debate, Carrie Severino, excuse me, of the Judicial Crisis Network. And then we will have a guest from the progressive left to give his or her perspective on the future of the court. So Carrie's with us now. Carrie, hello. How are you? Hi, Greg. How are you doing? Good. So, Carrie, you know that not for the people in Washington who live and breathe vacancies on the Supreme Court, but for the average American who would say to themselves, you know, I remember 2016, Antonin Scalia died. The president nominated someone, maybe his name was Merrick Garland, I can't quite remember, but that wasn't even dealt with. And now there's a vacancy and it's much closer to the election and it's going to be dealt with. That seems like a vast contrast to me. I don't understand it. I know you have a perspective on it. I know Democrats will vociferously disagree with it, but I want to give you a chance to explain it. That's right. So the hist- this historical precedent on this is very clear, and actually both the 2016 and the 2020 cases fit squarely in what we see in the historical precedent. In 29 different cases, there have been Supreme Court vacancies during election years. In 100% of those cases, the president has then made a nomination. So that's what we saw. Oh, President Obama made a nomination in 2016. President Trump is going to make a nomination in 2020. The question you have to ask to find out what happens next, does it get confirmed, is really who controls the Senate. Because if you look historically, in, in years like 2016, where the Senate was of a different party as the president, overwhelmingly historically, the nominee does not get confirmed. So it's, it's really no surprise. That's kind of a natural consequence of the political check that our constitution puts in the process. It's kind of like the American people, they've got the president in the midterm election year, 
if they're switched parties of the Senate, they're kind of tapping the brakes on that, on that president, right? And then the election effectively became the, the American people's tiebreaker vote. You've got the Senate on one side, the White House on the other. Tiebreaker goes to the people. And in 2016, they, they decided they wanted uh, to elect Donald Trump. In 2020, you have a case like occurs when the, when the White House and the Senate are controlled by the same party. No surprise there either. Historically, the overwhelming uh, number of those cases uh, is that they get confirmed. And when, when it hasn't been, there's been, there, there are kind of other things that have happened. Abe Fortas, there was a bipartisan opposition too, because he was, uh, he had some ethical issues in his background, et cetera. So we're squarely within precedent on that side as well. Um, what's frustrating to me is hearing Democrats, some of whom made what I think are entirely specious, even attempted to constitutional arguments in 2016, saying, well, there's a constitutional duty to hold a vote. That's not true. You know, if you, if there's, there's no duty to hold a vote or not hold a vote. Um, but they said you constitutionally have to have a vote uh, if it's President Obama's nominating this year, but now suddenly have changed their tune. That, that to me is a real, is a real turnaround. I think the, the real historical question is, it's, it's, and this is how the Constitution designs it. It's a matter of the control of the different branches of government. And at this point, the American people gave not only the Senate back to the GOP, but in 2018, an increased Senate majority. Uh, and I think that's, that's uh, the reason we're going to see a confirmation this year. Right. I'm not a lawyer, but I've been through enough of these processes. The president nominates and it's the advise and consent power of the Senate. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't consent and it can decide how it doesn't consent, can't have a hearing, doesn't have a vote. It doesn't consent, period. That's the end of the story. Right. Right. Um, that's the law. That's what the Constitution says about it. And yet it does feel to me, Carrie, and I think the polls reflect this, a bit rushed, a bit hurried. Why the rush to do this before Election Day? If it were not a confident party, and confident in its prospects, would not it wait and have it done in the lame duck? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons to do it. First of all, we don't know if it really be a lame duck because we, we don't know who's going to win the election, right? But the I think there's a lot of reasons to have this done before the election, even aside from, you know, thinking, well, this is the, this is the one chance. The big challenge that I see coming up down the pike is we now have eight members in the Supreme Court. And we know, unfortunately, no one really wants to see Bush versus Gore, you know, times two. But unfortunately, there already have been a lot of questions going to the Supreme Court with having to do with whether it's mail-in ballots or timing of elections or all these different things that need to be addressed. I think it would be better for the country to have that full complement of justices on the court to be able to address those concerns. But I'll point out as well, if you look at the historical precedent, there is more than enough time to get this done. Justice Ginsburg herself uh, was very nearly unanimously confirmed in only 42 days. Justice O'Connor, 33 days. You look at Justice John Paul Stevens, it was a 19-day confirmation process. It's not, this is not something that is a, a that, that requires Herculean efforts, particularly when you consider that the women that just that President Trump is looking at right now, it seems like the final uh, nominees that he's deciding between are Barbara Lagoa and Amy right. Coney Barrett. Both of them have recently been confirmed by the Senate by bipartisan majorities. So these are not people who are unknown to the White House. They literally just finished their updating of their vetting. So they don't have to do a starting from scratch kind of look for people. It's also people the Senate is familiar with. They've had recent FBI background checks, recently turned in their bulky Senate questionnaire. All they would have to do is fill in the last few years to update it. So it's actually, we're in a very good position to move swiftly in a way that many nominations aren't just because of those, those coincidences of the, the way that the list has, has uh, panned out. So yesterday, and that would be Wednesday of this week, the Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer asked a question of the presiding officer of the Senate, who 
happened to be Kelly Loeffler, our senator from Georgia, and said, is there any precedent in the records of the United States Senate to confirm a justice of the Supreme Court from July to election day? The answer from the chair, not my answer, the answer from the chair, no. And Chuck Schumer said, that's all you need to know. There is no precedent this close to an election in the entire history of the Senate. You don't disagree with that, I'm sure. Right. Right. Yeah. I, l- let me explain the context for that, though. The large reason for that is for most of American history, that space of time, the Senate had been in recess. So, of course, there's not elections. There actually have been Senate. There have been Supreme Court vacancies filled in that time, but they generally have been filled through recess appointments because the Senate simply can't confirm someone if they're in, in recess. So, for example, uh, Earl Warren, uh, a nominee by President uh, Eisenhower, Bill Brennan, these were two people who were recess appointed. Bill Brennan was in October, right before an election, right? So this is absolutely happening in that period, but they couldn't have a confirmation because the Senate was in recess. So, okay, yes, that, that factoid is correct, but it doesn't actually tell anything about what you would do if the Senate were in, in, in session during that period, which obviously in modern times it is. Do you have a favorite uh, between Barbara Lagoa and Amy Coney Barrett? You know, I think they both would be great options. They, they each have an, an individual story that I think while they're going to disagree with Justice Ginsburg in terms of the jurisprudential issues, I think they both in their own way are kind of trailblazers and incredible role models for women that actually fits very well in terms of her legacy on that front. And she acknowledged, you know, she said, I want people to know women come in all different shapes and sizes. We don't all agree. And I think this is going to carry on that tradition of hers. You know, Amy Coney Barrett, mother of seven, two of those children adopted from Haiti. And meanwhile, with all of this, she has accomplished at the highest peak of her uh, of her career, you know, a, a, a tenured professor at Notre Dame, a clerk for Justice Scalia, now member of the Court of Appeals in the Seventh Circuit, Barbara Lagoa herself, a daughter of Cuban immigrants. Her parents came here fleeing a country where they felt they couldn't depend on the rule of law. Her own father, he couldn't go to law school because he was he was trying to flee a tyrannical regime. And now she, in sort of this next generation carrying on of the American dream, be, not only becomes a lawyer, but then becomes a judge, a member of her state Supreme Court, a member of now the federal bench, and perhaps even the U.S. Supreme Court. It's a really inspiring story in either case that I think Justice Ginsburg would be proud of. That's the voice of Carrie Severino, Judicial Crisis Network. Uh, more with Carrie Severino in segment two of the podcast. This is called The Takeout. I'm Major Garrett. See you in a minute. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to our audiences in so many different places. The podcast audience, our earliest and most beloved adopters. Hello, CBSN. Hey, how you doing? Hope you can see me a little bit better. Better camera. The overlords finally heard my career cries out for help. And on more than 75 radio stations around the country. Hello, how are you? And including on Sirius XM, POTUS Channel 124, which is a big Big move for this very show, and we're grateful to talk to all of you by whatever means you hear or see us. Carrie Severino, Judicial Crisis Network. Um, you clerked for Antonin Scalia, did you not? I clerked for Justice Clarence Thomas. I'm sorry, forgive me, Clarence Thomas. That's my mistake. I should know better. Yeah. Um, so 
if Clarence Thomas, as a justice, had a dying wish, would you want those in the Senate to regard it or disregard it you know, about the vacancy? <laughs> right. I, I think Justice Ginsburg, despite her wishes, and we all know her perspective on the current president, she was not a fan, right? Um, that that doesn't change the constitutional process. And, if, and honestly, obviously her wish was she didn't even want to just be confirmed by, by be replaced by whoever won the election in November. She said she wants the next president. So that I, I, we can understand and respect that that's her wishes. But honestly, this is a, she, she would, she would realize this is a, a process that is going to continue. And uh, certainly there's no way people would expect them to hold a seat vacant for four years because of justice Ginsburg preferring to be replaced by someone uh, of her own party. That's the, that's something that many justices may experience, but they all understand that the Constitution gives that authority to the president in, in combination with the Senate. So this might sound like a glib question. It will sound that way. I grant you that. It's not. Uh, more than 200 federal nominees to the federal bench from the president of the United States have been confirmed in his first term. If any, his nominee is confirmed before this election, will be three Supreme Court justices in his first term. Will the judiciary still be in crisis after all of that? <laughs> yeah, rebranding re entirely to change the, change the name is, it would be challenging, right? But, you know, I think I, I am really excited about where we are with the judiciary right now, to be honest. Although I think I would still love to see 100% of the judges have an approach to the law where they're faithful to the Constitution and the, the text of the Constitution, the text of the rule of law first. And honestly, I think that's an a approach that should appeal to Americans across the political spectrum, because it's not about, you know, you, you want to get a liberal result from the bench. I want to get a conservative result from the bench. I want the result to be tied to what law is passed by Congress. That means laws that were passed by Democrats and signed by Democratic presidents and laws that were passed by Republicans and signed by Republican presidents. And I have spoken with uh, Trump, some of Trump's appointees to the bench who said, this is the most frustrating part of the job is that sometimes you've got a law you're looking at and it's either a law I just profoundly disagree with, or it's a law that frankly is really badly written. You know, spoiler alert, there's a lot of sausage that gets made in Congress mm -hmm. or laws that are just really out of date, need to be updated, but they recognize this is not the job of the, of the courts. And we all get frustrated with inaction in Congress, but if the courts are taking over their role, the members of Congress are happy to let them do it. They don't want to have that responsibility. We need the courts to stick to their constitutional role so that the, the Congress is effectively forced into doing their own. Right. But to your point um, about what the Constitution said, as anyone who has spent any time looking at this has learned, it's what the court says the Constitution said. And it's what those members at that time said it said. And many blanks have been filled in over the years. The court didn't say anything that gave us the Miranda rights we now take for granted. Those were read in to the underlying meaning of the words of the Constitution. You would also say, probably uh, on the negative side, well, they also read in things about Roe versus Wade that weren't there. It was an implied right to privacy that grew out of several other cases before it, and that was a leap. But nevertheless, the process was the same. The justices read into gray areas or undefined areas and created law. And sometimes, I mean, let me just stay up, stop you right, stop myself right there and get you to evaluate that. Uh, yeah, and this is something that Justice Thomas has spoken about. This is why he really believes that he said, I took an oath to the Constitution. I didn't take an oath to what some just judge said about it 10 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago, or if you want to say a whole, what, what, what a group of five old white men said about the Constitution 50 years ago, right? This is what this, the, the, the role of a judge 
isn't to uh, build accretions on upon accretions. It's actually be faithful to the text. So I think actually there are some times when you need to go back and say, all right, let's get to the root of what the Constitution actually says here. And uh, because there's there's a lot that has been read in and developed that maybe doesn't have basis in it. There's there are there are trains of of precedent that do stop at an actual constitutional text. But if they if they don't, we need to really consider whether you can be faithful to your oath to the Constitution while then applying law that's not what the Constitution says. Right. But as you well know, Carrie, uh, the, the Constitution could not have imagined in specificity same-sex marriage. The court had to deal with that. The court, I mean, the Constitution couldn't imagine all of the technology questions underlying privacy rights in the Internet. You have to, under, you have to imagine what those words mean in a modern context. And my only point is, to say that the only reliable document, the only North Star is the actual text of the Constitution seems to me to leave a lot of justices, whatever their underlying ideology, somewhat blind. But maybe I'm wrong. Well, you know, the, no one no one doubts. The, the most fervent religious doesn't doubt that the Constitution applies to modern technologies. The First Amendment applies to this podcast, even though our framers could never have imagined that the people would be exercising their freedom of speech in this way. And we can apply those same principles there, just, just as the First Amendment applies, you know, or the, the, the Constitution applies in all these other new technological areas. We have a Fourth Amendment that protects under against unreasonable search and seizure. We have to apply that with new technologies like heat seeking, you know, uh, cameras and things like that. And the court does that on a regular basis. That, that's not, that is not a, a problem for originalists. The problem is when you take things that actually are not in the Constitution. If there's not a clause that talks about an issue, you can't then say, well, now, but this is actually a right that the Constitution protects if it's not in the Constitution. You can certainly add them. We have amended the Constitution 27 times. They, the framers knew they weren't writing it for the, the, a, a law that would never change, but they had a process for doing that. The process was not get a majority of unelected judges in the Supreme Court. It's to pass an amendment. What do you think is the future of the Affordable Care Act if there is a 6-3 conservative court? Uh, well, right now, what we have is a 4-4 court and a, and a court in a decision below that actually I think has said there were issues with the, the underlying constitu the Commerce Clause issues. So I don't think you even need a new, a new uh, uh, justice to make that determination. I think you could easily have a 5-3 decision because Justice, uh, Chief Justice Roberts has been very clear about the underlying the Commerce Clause issues with Obamacare. I think that's a, this is a problem that if the court had done its job more clearly initially, maybe, maybe Congress could have fixed the issues underlying Obamacare by now. But it's not the court's job to save a law, however helpful, however popular, however they might not want to, to do it, simply because they think that this law is good. Their job is really limited as government, as, as uh, um, judges, to interpreting whether the law is constitutional. So you can have the best law on earth, but if it's not constitutional, it's not the judge's job to try to save it. Is Roe v. Wade constitutional? <laughs> that you know, this this is the question you're going to hear a lot of in this in this uh, upcoming debate, right? I would say I, I identified the same issues with that case that Justice Thomas has outlined, where you have a you, you have a constitution that it clearly establishes certain rights and nowhere in the constitution is abortion mentioned. So it's not the judges, again, it's not the judge's job to invent a new right there. And I'll add that Justice Ginsburg herself uh, said she didn't like how Roe versus Wade was decided. She didn't actually agree with the legal basis of it. She probably would have gotten there, but through a different legal 
Mm -hmm. route, but she also dis disagreed with the timing of it because she thought the court in that case jumped into an issue that was a huge issue of debate and in, in the country, an issue that was being debated through the, the democratic process. Some states had laws that were very liberal on abortion, some that, that were less so, much as we see today, right? You've got a range from Georgia to New York that is, is, is that have different approaches. And she thought that jumping into that with the court, constitutionalizing that issue actually had a very damaging effect for the debate in the nation as a whole and for the court itself. I think that's part of the reason we see the, contra the controversies in the, the process that we have today on the court. And I think it's some of the reason that for 40 years later, we're still debating this issue that I think we could have come to a, a, a different compromises in different states that actually would have better reflected where the American people are rather than this all or nothing uh, of trying to make it into a constitutional question when in fact the constitution's text doesn't speak to the issue. As they say, uh, to be continued, Carrie, uh, in a lot of different venues. But for us, thank you much for your time. Two segments with Carrie Severino. Two segments, we hope, with Vanita Gupta. But if not, someone from the progressive left to talk about this very same issue. Carrie, great to see you. Thanks for your time. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back. I promised you a kind of hybrid show, two different voices on the same topic. Carrie Severino, Judicial Crisis Network, was the first voice. Elizabeth Wydra, she is the president of, and I want to make sure I get this right, the Constitutional Accountability Center. Elizabeth, do I have that right? You have it exactly right. Great to be with you. What, it, what is that? So we are a nonprofit public interest law firm, think tank, and action center that focuses on the progressive promise of the text, history, and values of the U.S. Constitution. We litigate cases that, in the courts, um, and we also work with Congress and doing public education about the Constitution as well. Right, which fulfills the other promise of this podcast, at least the way I introduced it. Carrie uh, Severino, center right, you would be fairly described as center left. Yes. Very good. Uh, so... Uh, Carrie said, you know, there's something unusual about this whole process, filling uh, a vacancy right before an election. Oh, there's 29 instances, blah, blah, blah. Those are not her words. That's my summary of it. Um, because I know there are all different ways to statistically explain this. Mm -hmm. uh, she had her time. I want you to have your time. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, that what you said is right. You know, a lot of times you can splice the data. Um, you can go back to the early 1800s and find an example of a nominee then, or, you know, even some of the more recent nominees have had a fairly short time, although not quite this short, from confirmation from nomination to confirmation. But I just want to really make clear that we have never been in this situation before, which is not how many days until the election, we are in the election right now. Voting is already taking place in certain states in person, obviously, of course, absentee mail-in ballots. And so it's not just that the election starts in 40 some odd days, it's that it culminates in that many days and the election is already happening. And there has not been an instance of a justice to the Supreme Court being confirmed within that scenario. Um, also, frankly, I think it's just a separate question of Let's look at what's happening right now. And we have an issue where we have a justice who has passed away. It was her dying wish that she not be replaced until the next president is inaugurated. And we have the American people already voting, not just for the president, but also for senators who would be advising and possibly consenting to the president's nominee. Do I think it's a good idea to put a lifetime appointment to the Supreme Court on the bench while that is happening? I certainly do not. 
And we asked Carrie about the dying wish that's conveyed from Justice Ginsburg to, I, who, who was it to? Who? It was her granddaughter. Uh, a granddaughter. For, I want to make sure I have that correct. And Carrie said, it's nice. We want to honor that. We want to respect it. But even Justice Ginsburg wouldn't say it should override the Constitution. Your reaction? Yes, sure. Of course. Um, you know, I, I think that, you know, if it were contrary to the Constitution, then that would be one thing. But frankly, it seems to me just another example of Justice Ginsburg's wisdom that she would recognize that the legitimacy of the court that she served and loved so well would be undermined if you had her replacement put on the bench at this point. And instead, it was better for the good of the court, for the good of the country, if her replacement not be put forth until the next president is inaugurated. And, you know, absolutely, she knew, we all know that that could be a President Trump again, or it could be a President Biden. It's not about the party, it's about the legitimacy. And for those uh, who heard that number 29 from Carrie Severino, you can look this up for yourself. Uh, there's a very elastic way they got to 29. Uh, they include nine nominees from John Tyler who didn't seek re-election. And you can ask for yourself and dig into those numbers if that's really a valid way to think about this. It also is, remember, we have an elongated election year process. It didn't used to go until March. Now it goes to January. Uh, the, there is a lot in that 29 number that might not in all respects, be relevant to our current context. What are the stakes involved of this particular vacancy at this time? Look, you know, I think that the eyes of the nation are on this particular vacancy and this confirmation fight because Justice Ginsburg, perhaps unlike any other Supreme Court justice, maybe Justice Scalia probably comes closest, but I don't even think he's in the same ballpark when it comes to uh, public recognition and adulation. I mean, they're like literally baby onesies with Justice Ginsburg's face on them. She was beloved by the public across the ideological spectrum, although admittedly probably especially for progressives and frankly especially for women. But she was so well known by the public. Her death is felt by the nation. And so I think people are going to be paying attention to this Supreme Court nomination more than they ever have before. And the fact that we had a very contentious confirmation process with Justice Kavanaugh just a little bit ago only heightens that awareness of the Supreme Court, the importance of who sits on the bench, and the importance of getting the confirmation process right, which is something else that I want to point out. It's not just that we're already in an election, that voting is ongoing, that the culmination of the election is just over 40 days, but we also have a lot going on in the country in terms of the Senate's attention, addressing the pandemic, ensuring the government is funded, ensuring that there is another stimulus bill. There are a lot of things that the Senate needs to be doing in addition to what would be involved in putting someone onto the Supreme Court. And you don't want to do a rush job for a lifetime appointment to something as important as the Supreme Court. To Carrie's point, which she raised with us, well, it wouldn't be a rush job if it is Amy Coney Barrett or even uh, Barbara Lagoa. Both have been recently confirmed. Their files are updated. They would just have to fill out the questionnaire, gussy that up a little bit. I don't mean gussy it up in a fraudulent sense. I mean, just refresh it. And it wouldn't, it wouldn't take that long. So there's an important difference between any lower court confirmation process and the Supreme Court as evidenced by answers given both by uh, Judge Coney Barrett and Judge Lagoa, they repeatedly, in answers to questions, you know, think about abortion rights, uh, racial justice and civil rights, 
talked about the need to follow Supreme Court precedent. But when you're on the Supreme Court, you decide those cases. And so it's more important than ever for senators who represent the people to be able to ask the nominee those important questions about constitutional guarantees and to try to find out what a judge thinks about these crucial fundamental protections for equality and liberty and principles of basic fairness. I would also say that you know, these judges have been on the bench for a while. Coney Barrett, I think, for more than a thousand days. She's been on the Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals. So obviously, senators would want to dig through her record on the appeals court and be able to ask her about that. And then also, as we saw in the Kavanaugh confirmation hearing, however you feel about it, obviously, I think a lot of people can agree that Americans left that process feeling very dissatisfied and even though uh, Justice, now Justice Kavanaugh had been on the DC Circuit Court of Appeals, there were things that came out in that confirmation hearing that I think probably should have been given uh, you know, a, a more adequate airing so that there wasn't a cloud over the justice when he joined the court and frankly over the court itself. So we want to get this right. Do you think uh, the future of Roe versus Wade is also at stake? Oh, 100%. And you only need to listen to then-candidate, now-President Donald Trump when he said repeatedly that his litmus test for a Supreme Court justice would be someone who would vote to, in his words, automatically overturn Roe versus Wade. And we can only assume that anyone that he picks will have that uh, stated desire, will have that, uh, if not stated desire, at least the intent to gut Roe versus Wade wholesale or chip away at it so much that the constitutional protection of the right to choose has little meaningful reality. Do you think the Affordable Care Act is at stake? Again, yes. And that was one of the litmus tests stated by President Trump, that he wanted someone who would overturn the Affordable Care Act. And that includes the protections for pre-existing conditions so that you can still get insurance if you have a pre-existing condition. Now, I mean, think about all the people who've been affected by the coronavirus. If you've tested positive, you have a pre-existing condition, um, as well as many of the other protections that the ACA affords. And we've seen Chief Justice Roberts vote to uphold the core provisions of the Affordable Care Act. And we know that to the American people, getting quality, affordable health care is more important than ever and have it not necessarily tied to your job as people experience increased unemployment is more important than ever. And so to have a Supreme Court justice who, according to President Trump's own litmus test, would strike down the ACA and those crucial protections has got to be on the American people's minds. That is the voice of Elizabeth Widra. She is the president of the Constitutional Accountability Center. She is the center-left portion of our conversation this week about the future of the United States Supreme Court. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. We'll see you in just a second for Segment 4. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. 
Hi, working from home as we have been for a good number of months. You know why. I'm Major Garrett. This is The Takeout. Uh, There's a Supreme Court vacancy. You might have heard something about it. I'm just kidding. You're paying attention to this program because you are locked in and you're dialed in to significant political events uh, in our country. Elizabeth Wydra is our center-left guest in this two-portion version of the takeout. We had Carrie Severino the first two segments. We're going to have Elizabeth Wydra the second two segments. She is the president of the Constitutional Accountability Center. Elizabeth, do you think same-sex marriage is at stake? You know, I, I, I think it is. I think not just marriage equality itself, but also other protections for LGBTQ Americans. You know, we just even though the court just ruled on that. Well, right. I was just going to say, you know, we just had the court rule that, um, you know, protections for uh, employment and against employment discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation were included under Title VII. Um, but, you know, I think if we have a six to three majority of conservative justices, then I think you could see continued chipping away or I guess renewed chipping away at those important rights to equality that LGBTQ Americans have fought so hard and so long to gain from the courts. So let's go back to um, abortion for a second, because Carrie Severino said, hey, look, the worst that could happen, these are not her words, this is my summary of her words, is it would go back to the states. And before Roe was decided, states had different laws. And we'd just have a situation where legislatures would have different laws. What's wrong with that? Well, so first and foremost, what's wrong with it, and this is what comes to my mind as a constitutional lawyer, is that's not what the Constitution guarantees. The Constitution's 14th Amendment in particular guarantees equality and equal citizenship for all. And it's as Justice Ginsburg herself was such a champion of and was such a clear advocate for, you cannot have equal citizenship stature for women if they can't make fundamental decisions about their own bodies, like whether or not to have a child. If they don't have control of their own reproductive systems, it's hard to see how people can truly be equal citizens on the same terms as others. So that's first of all, that's not what the Constitution says. Secondly, I think that it makes a big difference in the real lives of American people. Yes, it's true that you you might still have half the states guarantee abortion rights, but what about all the people who need access to abortion care in those other states? A lot of people who are hardest hit by abortion restrictions are people who are low income and who come from communities of color. And so I think that it's terrible to just ignore the impact on the real lived reality of these Americans and their need to exercise their right to choose just as much as anyone else. Your right to equality and liberty and bodily autonomy should not depend on the state in which you live. And Carrie also said about the Affordable Care Act, look, it's not the job of the justices to interpret or gauge how popular or how helpful something is in terms of legislation. If its constitutional structure is rickety or unconstitutional, it's got to go, regardless of the implications of that. Your response? So that's true in the abstract. With respect to the Affordable Care Act, not only has the Supreme Court said that it's constitutional, but if you look at it as just simply a matter of congressional authority to pass legislation on health care reform, it's absolutely within congressional power. So it is 100% constitutional. The fact that we don't want a justice who would be on the court to strike it down doesn't just have to do with the fact that it literally saves lives, although I don't think that should be ignored, but because striking it down would 
to my mind as a constitutional lawyer, be putting a political agenda above clear constitutional interpretation about whether or not Congress has the power to do it. And I guess this, I would say I'm in agreement with carry on, regardless of whether your view on whether the policy is a good one or not. Mm -hmm. And um, for those in my audience who would ask to their mind reasonably, how did we get to Roe and how did we get to same-sex marriage when neither are in or contemplated by the Constitution or the framers who wrote it? So this, I think, is a really important question that I, as a constitutional lawyer, love when I get to talk about uh, to non-legal specialist audiences. So our Constitution is not a legislative code. It speaks in broad terms. It talks in terms of broad powers given to Congress. It talks in terms of broad rights guaranteed to the people. And so when we see words like equal protection of the laws in the 14th Amendment that apply to all quote unquote persons in the 14th Amendment, and then you apply that to, for example, marriage equality, clearly gay and lesbian couples are persons. Clearly they deserve the equal protection of the laws, just like any other couples. And for the same reason you struck down interracial marriages in the Loving versus Virginia case, the same logic applies. So what we do when we interpret the Constitution is we look to those broad guarantees. And even when you look to the people who drafted them, they themselves knew that there were going to be circumstances that they could not foresee that the Constitution would be applied to, whether it's because of advances in technology, advances in society, that they had to craft the Constitution in a broad enough way that it could apply and not need to be changed uh, from one year to the next. So the fact that the words marriage equality or the fact that the words about abortion do not actually come in the Constitution does not mean that the rights that are related to deciding whether or not uh, how your reproductive system should be used, deciding whether or not you can get married based simply on who you love, you know, those are things that really get to what does equal mean? What does equal citizenship mean? What does due process of law mean? And in this context, from your vantage point, I assume it's okay if the court gets ahead of the uh, legislative process, if it has to. Well, sometimes, you know, look, we have constitutional guarantees that the Supreme Court is obligated and empowered to enforce. Congress also has an important role to play in enforcing those guarantees. And in fact, in amendments like the 14th Amendment, which guarantees equality, the 15th Amendment, which guarantees the right to vote free from discrimination, it specifically says Congress is empowered to enforce those mechanisms. So absolutely, the, the court has a role to play independent of what the legislature does on certain issues, even if they're high profile issues. And before I let you go, uh... It's been my observation, I've covered confirmation fights in Washington since 1991, that the one constant is each side will argue a different side depending on the power structure they are currently possessing. True? Mm, well, you know, I, I like to think that people have principles and will stick to them. Um, you know, that's certainly how I try to live my life. I like my word to mean something. And no, I know, but but <laughs> but but you but you know as well as I do. Uh, you and I can roll the tape of yeah. Democrats and Republicans taking exactly the 
opposite position depending on which side they found themselves, majority or minority? You know, I, I think that uh, that does happen sometimes, but I think just because there's hypocrisy doesn't mean that the people shouldn't expect better. With that, we will say farewell and many, many thanks to Elizabeth Wider. She is the president of the Constitutional Accountability Center. She has been the center-left perspective of this center-right-center-left conversation about the vacancy at the Supreme Court and some underlying constitutional issues. Um, Elizabeth, it's been a great pleasure to talk to you. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining The Takeout. We'll see you again next week, folks. The Takeout is produced by Arden Fari, Jamie Benson, Sarah Cook, Ellie Watson, Zoe Poindexter, and Jake Rosen. CBSN production by Eric Susanen, Grace Seekers, and Daniel Peebles. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, go to takeoutpodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS Audio. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com survey. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.